0: Mark Inc. Ministries presents the preaching and teaching of Dr. Chuck Betters of Glasgow Church in Bear, Delaware. This sermon is part of the In His Grip series that can be found along with other various resources by visiting our website at markinc.org. That's www.markinc.org. The Scripture teaches that God makes no mistakes that he has a plan, and that plan included the coming of his son Jesus Christ to secure the salvation of his people. But now the birth line is how the Holy Spirit applies all of this in a time frame, because you see, that's where we live. So from the beginning, regeneration, to the end, that is our death, and then ultimately our glorification, we, we move in a time dimension. The Holy Spirit at some point passively known to you, unknown to you, I should say, passively engages your spirit with his spirit. Takes that which is dead and brings it back to life. Recreates, if you will, regenerates. At that point, your spirit and his spirit are joined together and then he begins to effectually call you to work through circumstances and situations to bring you to the point of understanding that you are a sinner and that you need a savior. And that point X, that conversion time, is where the spirit of God applies faith to your heart, teaches you, enables you, convicts you, renews you so that you can, by faith, trust in Christ and Christ alone for your salvation. Two legal acts take place at that point. One, you are justified, not by the works of the law but by the standard of law. Not because you are righteous, but because of his righteousness, which is imputed to you. You are made in the image and likeness of God, and that vacuum is now filled with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And then you are adopted, legally grafted into the family of God. Once an orphan, now a child of the living God, brought into all the rights and privileges and inheritances of living life in the kingdom of God. Well, having said all of that, and uh, having even spoken about the seal of the Holy Spirit, that is the promise that God gives to not only, uh, not only bring you into the body of Christ, but to, but to teach you and to give you assurance of your salvation and power to live out your Christian life. All of that process, all of that glorious process is absolutely meaningless unless you know how to apply it. And that was, that's what brings us to where we are today. Romans chapter 5. Look with me beginning with verse 15. But the gift is not like the trespass. By the way, this passage has been used by Arminians. Uh, people who believe in, uh, in, uh, in, in free will and people who do not believe that God elected some to salvation. Uh, that's what an Arminian is, but Arminians try to use this passage to teach their position uh, that uh, salvation on the cross of Jesus Christ was for all men, that He died on the cross for all men without exception, and that all men without exception have now the offer of salvation or have the opportunity of salvation made available to them that Christ dies on the cross and then turns it over to free will, to our human choices to determine whether or not we will believe that. Well, that's just not what the scripture teaches, but this is one of the passages that is used in an attempt to teach that, and I'm going to show you that it means just the opposite. Romans chapter 5, but the gift, verse 15, is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Now, before we go any further, I want to talk about two Adams. The first Adam and the last Adam. The first Adam we know about in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. We read about his creation in that in that passage. We read that God created man in his own image and his own likeness. We also know the story of the fall, and we'll get to that in a moment. He's the first Adam. The last Adam is Jesus Christ. Now, both of these Adams are the progenitors of a race. Adam is the progenitor of the human race, man in his lost condition. All of us who are born into the human race are born in the loins of Adam. He is the federal head of that human race of which all of us are a part. The last Adam is Jesus Christ. And he has brought into this world a new race, different from the old race, a new race that is a spiritual race. And just as the first Adam's race are created in his likeness, the last Adam's race are created in his likeness. And so we have two heads of two races. The first Adam, the human race. The last Adam, the spiritual race. And both of them are the progenitors of their races. Now you need to understand that as you come to this passage. Unless you do understand that, the passage becomes confusing. All right, let's pick it up. Again, the gift of God is not like the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. That's speaking of Adam's fall. But the gift, that salvation in Christ, followed many trespasses and brought justification. We already talked about that. For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, that's Adam, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Now, you notice that there are two races established, the one that's in Christ, the one that's in Adam. Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men. Now, who are these all men? Just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men. All of you qualify there. You see, we're all a part of the human race. We are all in the loins of Adam. And what is he telling us there? Condemnation has resulted in you because of the sin of one man. That's Adam. Adam's sin has been passed on from generation to generation. He was condemned, and just as you are a part of the human race, you are condemned as you are in the loins of Adam. Now look at it carefully. Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, that is all who are the first Adam's posterity, those who are part of the human race, so also the result of one act of righteousness, that's the crucifixion, death, and burial of Jesus Christ, that act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. Now, you see what the Arminian does with that is he says, Well, now look, it says there, all men. It says that Jesus dies on the cross for all men. It says no such thing. What it says is that this act of righteousness brings life and justification for all who are the offspring of that last Adam's spiritual race. That is his spiritual offspring. Certainly it cannot mean that he brings life for all men because we know for certain that Christians are in a minority. Not all men will go to heaven. Not all men will be saved. Not all men have life. In fact, the vast majority of the human race is perishing without Christ. But when Jesus Christ dies on the cross, he brings justification and life for every single one of his spiritual offspring that is all of the elect. Or justice through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners. Now, who's the many? Well, we know that the whole human race is sinners. Why doesn't it say all? It says the many. That's a special term. You know who that's referencing? You. You're a part of that first family. You're a part of that human race. You're a part of that fallen creation. The elect of God here are called the many. And he's saying that you were dead in your trespasses in Adam as a part of the human race. His sin brought death and condemnation to you. So also through the obedience of the one man, the many, that's the elect, will be made righteous. Two races, two offspring. The first Adam, human nature. The second Adam, or the last Adam, I should say, spiritual nature. I say, why are you talking about this? Well, as we talk about the order of the order of salvation, you need to remember that you still live in human bodies. You are still a human being, even though you have been made spiritual offspring in Christ. Now, here is where we begin to have a problem. Uh, turn over to Romans 8, chapter 28, uh, ch- uh, chapter 8, verse 28. I want to read something to you, and then we're going to talk about how we live as Christians. Romans 8:28. You've heard this passage a thousand times, but I want to underscore one phrase as we begin to talk about the fact that you are a human being, a part of a human race, but you are also a spiritual being, a part of a spiritual race, and how those two mix and interchange. Romans 8, 28. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined. Now here's what I want you to underscore. I want you to underscore the next phrase. To be conformed to the likeness of his Son. To be conformed to the likeness of his Son. You see your predestination and election in Christ and this whole ordo salutis, this order of salvation. The application of salvation to you from regeneration through your call, through your conversion, justification and adoption and the sealing of the Holy Spirit. All of that means nothing unless the end is achieved and the end that God seeks in in predestining and electing you is that you will be brought into complete conformity to the image of his son. Anybody here qualify? Well, either something's wrong or he didn't really mean that because there isn't cert- there certainly isn't one of us sitting here today. At least we reason this. There's not one of us sitting here today that has been completely conformed to the image and likeness of Christ. Yet that's the plan. That's the plan. Well, we're going to begin taking a fresh look at the doctrine of sanctification, but I gotta tell you, before we take a look at it, we have to do some unteaching, just as we've done all along here. You know, some of you come from different traditions, and some of these traditions that talk about how you're supposed to live as a Christian have their pluses and their minuses. Uh, I want to list a few of them for you, because four of them are incorrect, and one of them is biblical. And yet there's enough truth in each of these four traditions that we can't throw the baby out with the dirty water. Let me give you tradition number one. Tradition number one, as we talk about the doctrine of holiness, the doctrine of sanctification, I'm simply going to call pharisaical legalism or radical fundamentalism. Now, Now, there are churches like that all over the place. And because of that, many different kinds of rules and regulations result in one preacher's pronouncement. Uh, One of the real dangers is that when a congregation allows a pastor to become that kind of a demagogue and determine in and of himself what is right and what is wrong for the congregation, apart from scripture, you have the makings of a cult. And even in some of our our what we would call Bible-believing churches, the cultic tendency is already in place. Now, they would not like that label, but nonetheless it exists. That's tradition number one. Tradition number two is what I'm calling experiential perfection, or the holiness movement. Holiness is now determined not in rules and regulations, but in what you in your own spirit in conjunction with the Holy Spirit determined to be emotionally correct for you. That is, holiness is wrapped up in how I feel. I hope you are getting wise enough as Christians and mature believers, I hope you are getting wise enough to learn how to exhort these kinds of people. When they're going off in that direction... And the multitude of counselors has led them one way, and scripture has led them one way, and their emotions are carrying them another way. Call them to task on it. You say you love them? Then show them that you love them and call them to task, because they're wrong if they're governed by emotion. Holiness. Experientialism. Then there's a third movement. We'll simply call it sanctification by works or the social gospel. I'm going to throw that one out simply as unchristian. Liberation theology, if you will. That is, our holiness is wrapped up in what we do for the poor, it's wrapped up in what we do for the for the homeless, it's wrapped up in what we do for this uh, ethnic group or that ethnic group, and as good and as proper as those things are, they do not constitute the gospel of Jesus Christ. They constitute the fruit of our gospel, but they do not constitute the gospel. Tradition number four is where we're going to have to do some serious unteaching because most evangelical Christians have bought into this. Listen carefully. Uh, as great and, 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 believe me, as wonderful as the work of Campus Crusade is, I've got to, I've got to call them on this issue. I love the work of Campus Crusade. I would encourage your continued involvement in Campus Crusade. But for years, Campus Crusade has been propagating a false system of doctrine, and they didn't just come up with it. It's been around in evangelical circles for many, many years. And it goes like this. There are three kinds of people in the world. Spiritual people, unspiritual people, and carnal Christians. Spiritual Christians, unsaved people, and carnal Christians. A third class of people has been created that has absolutely no basis in the Word of God. And rooted in that is another mindset that goes something like this, and this is what we're going to explore in the weeks to come. Listen to me. Here I am faced with a temptation. Here I am face to face now. You men, listen to me. You're faced tomorrow with a sexual temptation. There you are at work, and you're faced with it. For years, here is what you have been taught, that inside of you there's a war. The war of the old man and the new man. The question that is now raised is, according to this fourth theory, the question that is raised is, which of those two men is going to gain access to the throne of your life? Who sits on the throne? The Lord or self? The new man or the old man? Romans 7 is interpreted in the context by this group as being, as propagating a system of dualistic nature. That is, within me there are two natures warring to do the right thing. The old man, which is part of Adam, the new man, which is part of Christ, and they war against each other, and whichever one wins at that given moment is the one that's on the throne of my life. Now, most of you have believed that. Most of you have been taught that. And so now we're going to inject something into your thinking that's going to challenge that whole system, and we'll come to that in a moment. That brings me to the fifth system, which I believe is the reformed or biblical approach. This is the one we're going to explore. Now, by the way, before we pass on too quickly, there's all there's truth, some truth in all four of these systems. For example, the fundamentalist, the, the legalist, makes us aware of the ever-shifting cultural values. For example, modesty in women, or conforming to the world's standards, etc. So you can't throw the whole baby out with the dirty water, but you need to be very careful. The holiness movement really talks about the place of emotion. I hope there's some truth there that we are emotional creatures and that God expects us to respond not only spiritually, but emotionally, so you can't throw that all out. The social gospel, I think, becomes a conscience for the Christian church to become culturally relevant and culturally engaged in humanitarian relief of suffering that exists out there. The carnal Christian approach really does bring home to bear the issue of who does reign in your life and maybe ought to bring to bear the question of whether or not you truly are saved. So you see there is some truth in all the systems so we can't throw them completely out but all of them are grossly deficient and here's where they're deficient they do not answer the basic question and here it is the basic question that will determine our understanding of the spiritual dynamic that is at work at every time, at every point in which I am tempted, every confrontation with the forces of flesh and world and Satan that I face every day of my life, the question I have to answer is this, where am I to discover the real meaning and the real purpose to my life? And when you answer that question, you're able to stand against the devil. Summarizing the statement, I'll put it this way. Personhood, that is who I am, precedes power. My personhood precedes power to be holy. I can't really be holy until I know who I am. Who is the real me? Who is the real person inside of me? And when I discover my own existence, my own meaning, and my own personhood, then I am engaged with an understanding of the power that is at work for me to face that sexual temptation, or to face that temptation to cheat or to steal, or to face that temptation to gossip. Genesis chapter 1, please go quickly. I'm going to read some scriptures to you that, that I hope are going to begin to answer the question of personhood. Satan's half-truth. Listen carefully to it. I don't think you'll miss it, but maybe you will. Listen to it. Genesis 1, beginning with verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. That's important. Let him rule over the fish of the sea, et cetera, et cetera. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. What's repeated there three or four times? How did God create you? In his image. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now the Lord had planted into a garden in the east in Eden. There put man and deformed formed him. And the Lord God made all the trees grow out of it, etc., etc. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What was in the garden? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Got that? Image of God, block one. Tree in the middle of the garden of the knowledge of good and evil, block two. Now go down to chapter 2, verse 25. The man and his wife were both naked, no problem so far, and they felt no shame. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, here it is now, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to him, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. Now underscore this, here's block three. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Created in his image. Do not eat of the forbidden fruit, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Satan comes along and he tells them a half truth. Did you get it? Did you pick it up? Did you catch it? You will be like God. That is half true. You want to know why it's half true? In one sense of the word, that was a true statement. They would become exactly like God in this respect. The moment they ate of the forbidden fruit, they became independent creatures. God is an independent being. But see, man wasn't created for independence. Man was created in the image and likeness of God. That is, man was created to have a dependent relationship upon God. Now when Adam and Eve fall, they become, as God is, independent. Therefore, God, who finds fulfillment only in himself, And man, who now must find fulfillment only in himself, become alike. So now we have Adam and Eve, fallen creatures broken from dependence upon God, independent of God. Therefore, they must find satisfaction, fulfillment, joy, pleasure, personhood, and identity where? In God? No, they broke off that relationship. They must now find all of those things in themselves. And ever since they fell, that's where every man who was part of the offspring of Adam, every human being has been in the same boat. God created man to have a dependent relationship upon him. That's what it means when he says he created us in his image. That is, we are to image the holiness of God, and that's where we find fulfillment. But Satan was quick. And with their fall, this new race of man is started. For they became independent creatures who would be cut off from life in God. They would be cut off from his mind, his perfections, and his purity. And so they'd have to find meaning somewhere else. And the only place they could look was in themselves or in their fallen environment. They died in their trespasses, they died in their sins, and they lost at that point their birthright. What was left for them to find their reason for existence? What was left for them to find meaning and purpose in life? Where would they have to look? Here it is. They'd have to look in their own flesh. That is, they'd have to look in their brains, their emotions, their senses, their bodies, their creativity, their imagination, their interaction with their environment. Man would have to find meaning in created, in the created aspects of not only his life, but the environment in which he lived, because he's cut off from the life of God. Imagine coming to this point in your life. All that you've worked for, all that you've labored for, all that you thought constituted meaning and purpose in your life, all that I had toiled to achieve, everything, everything, everything was what? Meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Now try doing that. Let me see you do that. Blow into the air. Now let me see you chase it. It's foolishness. It's meaningless. Nothing was gained under the sun. This guy was loaded, by the way. had all kinds of money to do whatever he wanted to do. Verse 17. You see what happens to him as the result of this chasing after the wind? How many of you are depressed? You know why you're discouraged this morning? Because you're following this pattern. You see what's going to happen when you follow this pattern? Verse 17. So I hated life. Well, what else is there to blame? If that's your God and your God fails you, what else is there to blame? So I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. How come we don't read stuff like that and understand it? Is that so tough to understand? Here is man cut off apart from the life of God. He is trying to find pleasure in himself, in his environment, in in his senses, in his flesh, in his emotions, and it doesn't work. Sin is not simply some sinister or evil force at work inside of us. Sin, listen, sin is the, is the fundamental necessity for every person who does not possess life from God. You have no alternative but to sin. You either have life in God or you sin. You find meaning in life in God or you find meaning in sin. Sin. There's no alternative because you are living a life that is independent of your creator and in that independence, according to the Bible, you can find no meaning. As a member of the human race that is centered upon a philosophy of humanism, that is, we are independent creatures, this kind of a man is dead to true meaning and his own flesh becomes his God. Turn to Romans chapter 8 and look with me at verse 20 Romans 8 verse 20 for the creation well that's that's our environment that's the world in which we live it's a fallen world you don't believe it's a fallen world you haven't checked it out lately the world is falling apart it's not coming together it's falling apart the beauty of God's creation is coming apart we're moving toward a climax why because the world is a part of the fall of man it is, it is a world apart from the life that we find in God. Romans 8.20 For the creation was subjected to frustration. Not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. So you want to find meaning and purpose in creation? It's going to be what? Frustrating. Why? Because the creation around us has fallen. Well, what does man do with that? He makes gods out of creation. He sees a tree, he worships it. Sees the sun, he worships it. Sees a mountain, he worships it. Sees a cow, if you're over in India, you worship it. Creation becomes your God. Romans chapter 1 tells us about that. And that man takes the very creation of God and makes it a God and misses the creator. So once again, life becomes meaningless to him. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Look with me at verse 17. So I tell you this, verse 17, and insist on it in the Lord. Whenever Paul says he insists on something, it doesn't sound like there's an option, does there? That you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated. ...from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. There it is. Meaning and purpose in life can never be discovered apart from life in God. And the alternative to that kind of living is sin. The lost man cannot see this truth. The unregenerated man, the man who has not been united with the Spirit of God, cannot understand this truth. For all of the unregenerate, the combined will to live and the will to discover meaning finds its expression where? In the flesh. I want to live. I want to have meaning and in order to live and have meaning i've got to what i've got to work the deeds of the flesh turn to galatians chapter 5 i'll show you what i mean galatians chapter 5 all of this unregenerated man's life is wrapped up in feeding the effects of his independence that is his flesh you see what you're looking at up here this human body is my flesh it has a brain some of you may not think so but it does it has a brain it has eyes both that are straight now it has ears it has torso it has artificial hip it has legs it has feet it has toes this is a human body this is my flesh but now here's the problem As a part of the human race, I died in my spirit. But you see, that spirit that died took its toll on this body. In other words, my sin nature so infected my body that my body will one day die. That's why you die. Some of you look like you're dying right now. Follow me. Listen. Listen to the logic. My sin nature corrupted my flesh so that my flesh will one day die. As Christians, we continue to wait for the redemption of our bodies even after we die. You see, the body cannot go to heaven the way it is because it's been corrupted by sin. So the body must be raised, incorruptible, undefiled. And that will happen when Jesus Christ comes back again. And if we're still alive, the body has to be changed. So I'm going to tell you something. You'll see a titanium prosthesis with a cobalt head lying here if Christ comes back today. Because the body is going to be taken and glorified and it's, gonna, it's not going to need an artificial part. It's going to be glorified with my glorified spirit. That's if he comes today. If I die and he comes 10 years from now, out of the grave, he will raise my corrupted body to incorruption, you see. But until then, listen, until then, guess what? My new nature has to contend with my flesh that still is corrupted. If you're in Galatians, and we'll close with this, I just want to read it very quickly. Galatians chapter 5 says, well, let's define these deeds of the flesh. What are they? The deeds of the flesh. Here they are. And I'd like to give you a preview. Here's the preview. I'm sitting in my home, and I'm watching TV. Sitting home, watching TV. Suddenly, something comes on the TV set that appeals to my sexuality and to my lust. Now, as a Christian, I'm faced with a problem now, right? What am I going to do? You young people go to a movie, and suddenly something comes up on the screen. What are you going to do? Or you go to work tomorrow, and all it takes is just a little... Nobody knows, nobody can see, just a little bit of cheating here, a little bit of cheating there, and you've stolen some money. Nobody will know it. You're faced with this temptation. Next time we're together, I want to propose to you two ways in which a Christian can face that temptation. One way is the way we have been traditionally taught, and it's the reason why we live so defeated a life. The other way is the biblical way, that I believe when you discover it, it will liberate you forever, forever from having to live with your theme verse being 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Isn't that a wonderful verse? That's a wonderful verse, but for some of us, it's our theme verse. Because every day of our lives, we're confessing again and confessing again and confessing again. Because we keep falling and falling and falling and falling and we even begin to wonder, am I really a Christian if I keep falling like this? You want to know why? Because you haven't understood the principle that personhood precedes power. And once you discover personhood, the power is going to come. Here are the deeds of the flesh. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery. I put those three together because they are man's attempts to discover meaning through his body, his glands, his senses, and his fantasies. That's what those three sins are. I'm going to find meaning. Now I'm going to do it, Lord, through sex, through my glands, through my senses, through touch. A broad term, verse 20, idolatry. I put that one by itself. It's whatever you decide, short of God-dependence, will give you meaning. You work feverishly to get it. Then once you have it, you guard it. Then you sacrifice to it. Then you worship it. To lose it is to lose life itself. The best answer whether or not you're an idolater, answer this question. If I lost blank, I would lose life itself. My life would no longer have meaning if I lost blank. If you've got something to put into that blank, you're an idolater. Unless you put Christ in there. Next in, witchcraft. Now man begins to search for meaning in the occult. By the way, the word there is sorcery. This is drugs. Mind control. Astrology. Unity, faith. New ageism. Any external stimulus that I use to control how I feel. That is anything that causes me to feel better. That's witchcraft. Hatred, discord, jealousy, and fits of rage. You see, those are common emotional terms. All terms that reflect the standard reactions of one who is frustrated with his given set of circumstances. Something has happened to me, I don't like it. So I, I respond with hatred, discord, jealousy, and fits of rage. Some supposed meaning or purpose in my life has been taken from me, and I've been threatened by something, or it's been kept out of my reach. Therefore, the deed of the flesh there becomes hatred, discord, jealousy, and fits of rage. Selfish ambition, dissensions, and factions. I put those three together. These three point to the, to the conflicting ideologies as to where value in life can best be discovered. All caused by people who are determined to gain control over the lives of others. Power grabs, if you will. I have my goals, and if I have to walk all over you in the process to achieve my goals, then so be it. If you stand in my way, I will rally support from others to get you out of my way. If you, if you, if you get in the way of my dreams, then I'm going to, I'm going to bring others around me so that, so that we together can walk over you in order to achieve my dreams. That's how church splits happen, by the way. Verse 21, envy. The standard reaction of the flesh in response to the fact that you have what I want. And I ain't going to, and I'm going to get it. You have what I want, and I'm going to get it, and I ain't going to take no for an answer. Drunkenness, orgies, and the like. Man becomes hopelessly lost in his quest for meaning, and he gives up. He just plain gives up. That's what drunkenness, orgies, and the like means. Therefore, I will have to get something else in order to cope with reality. Man's hopeless struggle for meaning will never, never, never be found in these deeds of the flesh. But only as we learn to enter into a dependent relationship upon God. i close by saying this. C.S. Lewis made this statement. He said, when Adam and Eve fell, they gave birth to a new species, a new kind of man, not made by God. They had sinned their way into existence and therefore radically altered their constitution. But see, here's the problem. Here's the serious, serious problem. I've listed for you the deeds of the flesh. Here's the problem. All of my life, my flesh has grown accustomed to these deeds. All of my life, I'm learning every day how to feed the flesh. But my flesh is not the real me. The real me is a new creature created in Christ Jesus to have a dependent relationship upon him. This program has been brought to you by Mark Inc. Ministries. Proclaiming the truth that God is sovereign and you can trust Him. Please visit us online at markinc.org to learn about other available sermons and resources.